and welcome to Sip and Spin. My name is Skylar and over here in cute little fancy overalls that are green is Brittany. I don't know if they're technically overalls because they don't go all the way up. What would you call those? They're suspenders because they attach to my pants. Oh, I thought it was like mate. Like... No, because they're, they're actual suspenders. Oh, I thought it was like just like <laughs> it was just like pants with those attached as the oh, thing. I didn't realize. old school suspenders. Oh, it's really cute. She looks real cute. <laughs> Thanks. Hello. This is, wait, what do I say? We are Variety <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> Episode 16, guys, we still don't got it. Where we talk about anything, everything, and suspenders, apparently. But also nothing. But how are you? I'm good. Uh, I was really protective today, so that felt nice. Told Brittany all the different ways I injured myself, and she was not surprised by any of them. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's been good. It's Sunday, which I was happy about. This week was awful. Yeah. I say that every time we record. <laughs> I know. But I actually have a good reason, not just work. Uh, well, it's a good thing because I got my second dose of the vaccine, but I thought I was dying on Thursday. And even on Friday when I came into work, Brittany was like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm still a little bleh, but I'm fine. And she was like, well, you look like you're about to pass out. And I was like, I do. And she was like, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a doozy, but... The important thing is you're vaccinated. Yes. Woo. I'm so happy about it. That is exciting. My mom got her second one this past week also, just like you, and she was like, got a little rough there. I'm like, yeah, but it's worth it. Yeah, and then I decided that during my COVID vaccine recovery day that I was going to watch a David Attenborough documentary and started sobbing. <laughs> because it was not the happy David Attenborough that teaches you about like different environments and different animals and the way that they live. This was all sad. It was about, it was mainly about climate change, which I did not realize that that's what it was about going in, which is good because it needs to be addressed. Like climate change is a real thing that's happening everywhere. Global warming, it's real. And no matter what president is telling you that global warming and climate change isn't real, it is. But still, I didn't know that going in. So when I saw the fact that there were all these seals on a cliff that's usually ice so they can slide down, but the ice was all gone from those cliffs. They were sliding down rocks and hitting the rocks on the way down. So I had to watch a hundred, hundreds of seals fall to their death. And I started crying into my mint tea. It was a rough time. That's very sad. <laughs> it was sad. I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable talking about yeah. it. Because it just made me so sad. That's why I'm laughing. Yeah, I think they, they know that about us by now. Um, or on that note, this is a true crime episode. Yeah, week. so there, there could will be, a... be lots of inappropriate laughing. <laughs> lots of nervous, uncomfortable laughter. Yeah, so fair warning there. But yeah, those of you keeping track of Skylar's crying... Put a little tally mark. Oh, I did forget to, <laughs> to, to put it on my on my notes. <laughs> yeah, Skylar also keeps track of her crying. So how was your week? Um, now that I talked about myself for forever. Uh, it was just same old, same old. I don't even know what we were doing. <laughs> I asked you how your week was, and then it just... Yeah, Skylar asked how my week was, and I paused the recording, and I told her, and now I think I ruined this whole episode. Skylar's <laughs> very down and out. I feel like my whole world just got a bus crashed into it. <laughs> but we're with you guys right yeah. now. Yeah. So it's okay. Can we get into the drinks? Can we start that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we drinking? We are drinking Brittany's Choice. Yes. And she chose this Peach County Cider Boys Apple Peach Cider. Yes. I love Cider Boys. Um, and I 
the peach is my favorite. And, pe and I love peach flavors, and I love cider. So let's crack into it. Amanda, please don't sue me. <laughs> Cheers. Oh. <laughs> that was the... <laughs> That's a ch, apparently, of cans. Yeah. Those are, those are cans hitting each other. <laughs> I like it. You like it? Mm-hmm. Good. I thought, I mean, I figured you would, but... I like it because it's, it's, it's very sweet, but it's also, like, got, like, a little tart at the end. I was telling Brittany how I was excited for this because I do like cider and how I went to a like dinner bar um, that we have downtown. Um, a dinner bar? <laughs> like a place where you can get dinner and there's a bar. A restaurant and a yeah. bar? <laughs> I went to a dinner bar. <laughs> Whatever the fuck words. <laughs> but um, And it was nice. There was like outside seating and a little fire that I was sitting next to with uh, two of my friends, Maddie and Cassian, who I had just met the night before. And we were all hanging out with the staff after closing. And uh, Cassian went up to get a beer and then they offered a cider on the house and she gave it to me. <laughs> and so I had a free cider and it was delicious. Cider? I like cider. It was my gateway to beer. So I can't drink beer. I will never like beer. I like IPAs. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> She's bad and bougie. Yes. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> In my pink room. <laughs> With the flowers <laughs> down the wall. Um, anything else to discuss? No, I don't think so. All right. So I guess I'll just jump right in with my case. I should have brought my crochet. <laughs> <laughs> Through the peach. <laughs> I, I try to make it short. It's a case I feel like I've heard of before, but I don't know for sure. And I don't know if anyone else that I listen to or am aware of has ever talked about it. It is the Marcus Wesson case. The name sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. I may have to hear it more. Okay. So, um, just... General trigger warnings that we always kind of do with true crime cases. Obviously, all of these are usually pretty bad. Uh, this one, specifically, um, trigger warning for murder and um, sexual assault and incest. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty icky. But I just felt like it should be out there because I don't couldn't find a whole lot on it. So like I said, it's going to be fairly short and sweet, but not sweet. Yeah, so I'd say not <laughs> sweet at all. So, be short and sad. <laughs> yeah, this is the case of Marcus Wesson, which is sometimes referred to as the Vampire King of Fresno. That sounds a lot more familiar. Okay, you might actually know this case, and I couldn't remember if I did or not. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I still, I'm like, that sounds familiar, but I'm like, do I really know? Because I'm trying to, like, think of more details, and I'm like, I'm not really coming up okay. with any. We'll see. I'll get into it right now. It's March 12th, uh, 2004, in a small community in Fresno, California. Two women, Sofina Solorio, Solorio and Ruby Ortiz, are with some friends and family members, um, and they are shouting in the front yard of this small um, house, which is the office building rundown. Uh, they were yelling. Skylar did a cold chill, so I'm laughing. It's not the case. She, yeah, she just, very violently was shaking. I just had a really bad cold chill, and Brittany kind of looked up, and we were like, didn't say anything. So I was like, okay, we're not gonna laugh. It's gonna be fine. But then she just kind of like slowly looked back down, and then I couldn't help but laugh. And then she started laughing because she started smiling when she looked down. I was like, oh crap. I was like, now nah, I'm gonna start laughing. <laughs> We needed to laugh. Yeah, this, this is going to keep happening because I'm going to look for little things to be able to <laughs> laugh at to try and bring the mood up. 
Yes. So um, these two women, along with uh, other family members and friends of theirs, were yelling in front of this small house um, in Fresno community. They were yelling and demanding that their children be released to them. They were making these demands of a very large, over six feet tall man, Marcus Wesson. They were claiming that their children were being held captive inside this home and that they were going to be harmed by him. Marcus Wesson was also their uncle. So their uncle has their two sons in his house and they're claiming that they're being held captive and they want them to be like they gathered all these other people to come start a ruckus in his yard. Okay. While very large and intimidating, a lot of people described Marcus as a very gentle and calm man, which he demonstrated here as he calmly was trying to get these women to calm down and just this was being very docile like he wasn't aggressive he wasn't shouting back at them he was very calm cool and collected as this continued and the ruckus escalated neighbors eventually called the police over the dispute when they arrived they uh, chalked it up to just kind of being a normal routine child custody dispute thing like you know these things happen probably every day to them uh marcus remained calm with the officers some articles even said that he was cooperative to the point of agreeing to give the children back to the mothers and that he wanted to tell them goodbye first. So he asked the officers to wait outside and he was going to go back in, get the kids, say goodbye, or bring them back. That last little bit, it wasn't listed everywhere that I read, so take it with a grain of salt. This case, the three articles I read, they all were basically the same, but varying different details like mm. that. So... I'm just gonna cover them both and then you take what you do. Take what you will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> take what you do. Take what you do take. That also works. Um, but in all the articles, he did return to the house, close and lock the door. Is this the one where, is that a, is this a different case? I don't want to spoil it if we'll it is see. the same case, but I think I have an idea where this is going. Okay. Even with the women's insistence that the kids were in danger, the police had no indication that there were any safety issues. They didn't have a warrant. They had no authority or good reason to enter the home after he left them outside and went inside. So they were just like, sorry, we can't do anything. Like, we don't have the authority. Uh, next thing you know, gunshots go off. Some articles said the police denied hearing any. I don't know this for a fact, just putting it out there. Like I said, some articles said that the police specifically denied hearing it, but neighbors and the women did hear gunshots. After about an hour, give or take some, uh, Wesson calmly and quietly walked out of the house, covered in blood, and he surrendered to the police. Before I go into what was discovered, let's rewind. Also, it's not what I thought. I thought this was the one with the kids that were in the house, and there was a custody battle, and he locked the kids in the house with himself and then set the house on fire. Oh, okay. I, I know that case you're talking about. Yeah. No, this is different. Um, but it was kind of getting there. I was like... Oh, is this the one where he sets <laughs> yeah. the house on fire? Because it kind of got there, but no, it is not different. Yeah, so while I leave you there, covered in blood and surrendering, let's go back. Marcus Wesson was born in 1946, and he was the eldest of four children. His father was Benjamin Wesson, and he was said to have been an abusive alcoholic who could not hold down a steady job. It was also said that he left the family for several years to live with another man. His mother, Carrie, was a strict... Uh, Seventh-day Adventist. I don't know what a Seventh-day Adventist is. Strict beliefs, Jesus-heavy. But not all of them take it too far, but some do, and in his case, it is going to go too far. Okay. And so I'll kind of go through their beliefs. I wasn't just sure if it was, like, if there was something about, like, especially on the seventh day that I was, like, wasn't, because, you know, the seventh day is the Sabbath. 
and like your rest on the Sabbath. So I didn't know if it had anything to do with that or like how it was. It might. I'm not religious, guys. I am just, I do it case by case. I, I grew up Baptist. <laughs> I don't know anything else. <laughs> In this case, it comes into play religion heavily. So that's kind of why I picked it is because it does go super extreme. Um, but I only know it in this specific case, and he, I think, okay. did a turn yeah. with I what they literally are. I literally only know, like, the Baptist church, and I know a little bit of the Methodist church. I had a friend who was Methodist, and I, all I really knew is their baptism thing, and that's it, was that their baptism was different. And then I have a friend who's Catholic, so we would kind of talk about, because he was like, you want to go to Catholic, you want to go to Mass with me? I was like, if you go to a sermon with me. And he was like, I don't want to. I was like, oh, I'm not going to Mass. <laughs> but we... <laughs> Honest. <laughs> and I was like, fair. Like, yeah. if you grow up Catholic, you aren't going to want to go to a Baptist sermon. But I was like, well, I'm not going to go to a Catholic Mass if I didn't grow up Catholic. I was like, I'm not going to know what's going on anyways. Because he would like tell me all the things that they did and all the rules they have and like the chants and the movements and how they all do it together. I'm like, I would stand there looking like a lost puppy. It would be so embarrassing. Yeah. I, basically, I think it is Seventh-day Adventist. Based on what I just Googled, it's kind of a combination of Methodist and Catholic. So they do probably have a lot of rules in that sense. But mm-hmm. his mother was especially strict. So how we're going to really touch on there. Um, so she led the family in daily Bible studies and would whip the children with an electrical cord. Oh, my God. At just, like, the slightest... I don't want to study or like doing something wrong. Like she was serious about it. Despite this upbringing though, relatives and people who knew Marcus said that as a child, he was a very kind boy and he was a good seer. No red flags to speak of. His favorite game to play was playing preacher and leading a flock and all that. So that sounds very cult leader. Yeah, we're going to get there. (laughs) That immediately sounds like a cult leader. (laughs) That's why I picked this case. It does get a little culty. But yeah, if that's like, do do you children but i don't think a game kids should play is playing preacher let me lead a flock um because like it takes a turn (laughs) normal kid games like you know you play doctor you play like house play house you play you even play like teacher teacher. that's fine different different really different Preacher might be taking it a step too far especially when your mother beat you if you didn't do it right like you know I'm already getting, like, uh, yeah, like this gets, isn't going to go well. Guys, it gets pretty bad. So if religion stuff bothers you, trigger warning for that, too. That was not one I kind of forgot about to throw in. At 17, he dropped out of high school and joined the military. He went on to leave the military with an honorable discharge and settled down in San Jose. I didn't really find anything else about that, just that it was honorable. He there met Rosemary Maytornina. I don't know if I'm saying that right. She was an older woman. She was 13 years older than him, to be exact, but, like... I mean, as long as he was legal age, like, I don't really care about that. And he was excited to be with her, though. Uh, Excited mainly because she had eight kids already. And he was eager to take on this big family since he believed they needed, quote, a shepherd to guide them. So, this young, young guy, fresh out of the military, he's this older woman with eight kids, and he's like, they need me to lead them. So he was excited. (sighs) Rosemary and Marcus soon had a son together. So she had another kid. At some point, one of her older daughters uh, was struggling with drug addiction. And then she left her seven children with the couple, bringing the total number of children in the house to 16. Jesus. Yes. This is looking like a really twisted version of the Duggar family. (laughs) Well, even that's twisted. (laughs) 
Yeah, but... So, I mean, they, they just got in trouble for similar stuff. Oh, did they? Josh Duggar is a pedophile. What? Yeah. I didn't know that. Right? Is that true? Hold on. Here, I got my phone. I'll look it up. Okay. For child pornography or something, he got in yeah. trouble for. Yeah. It says child pornography. What? Yeah. People have been suspicious about him for a while, but I think he and finally got caught. And he also was at a strip club, and he was not abiding by the rules that the stripper set for him because he was rougher than she wanted him to be. Yep. Oh my god, I didn't know that! Oh yeah, that's been all over my TikTok lately. Yeah, he's... they. People have had weird vibes about him for, for forever. The whole family, really. I've literally never, like... I've seen one episode. Oh, I've never watched it, but I've just seen, like, clips and the way... That just That's too many children, so that's weird to me already. Yeah, see, that's why I thought it was weird, because the fact that they were having so many children, I was like, oh, that's what you meant by, like, they're twisted, too. I was like, oh, well, yeah, they have, like, the, the fact that they have that many. I didn't realize it was like that, because I was even thinking about, what if I just started watching trashy TV for no reason? I love a good trash every now and then, and I was like, that just, kind. just having it in the background while I'm, like, doing something else, just to watch, like, these trashy TV shows, and I was like, I'm gonna watch Meet the Duggars, like, I don't know, like, I I hadn't gone to look for it, but now I'm not going to watch that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I didn't know that. Ugh. Yeah, so now they have 16 children. How many times are you going to ruin my day, Brittany? <laughs> Give me 20 more minutes. <laughs> it's going to go down quick. Soon after, or around the same time, the timeline wasn't entirely clear when this started happening, but um, another one of Rosemary's daughters came into attention, uh, but in a very different way. Marcus became fixated on her daughter, Elizabeth. I was worried you were going to say that. Rosemary's eight-year-old daughter. Oh, no! He claimed that, quote, that God had told him that Elizabeth was his wife and that she was special. And he held a home marriage ceremony to the eight-year-old child. He then took her out of school to begin personally, air quotes, teaching her. It doesn't get better. I'm gonna here. throw up. It gets way worse. I'm gonna throw up. Hey, guys, uh, by the way, <laughs> the Bible uh, doesn't say that. God does not tell you that. Because if you remember the whole argument oh, against... God personally told him that. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, because even if you, like, remember the whole um, Christian... Like, you know, so how some Christians, a lot of Christians are homophobic because in Leviticus, it says man shall not lay with man. It doesn't say that in the original translation. No. That didn't even come up until the 50s when Eisenhower was president and was using and like it was that translation was being used as homophobic propaganda. The original translation, it either said father shall not lay with son or uncle shall not lay with nephew. It was preaching against incest and pedophilia. God is not telling you that your wife is an eight-year-old. Sorry. We'll get on to more of what he thinks the Bible says. <sighs> I thought it's, it's a bad one. Um, this is why I hate organized religion, by yep. the way. Because, like, I, I still identify as Christian. I identify as Baptist, um still but yeah, I you're a good person that's fine do not agree with organized religion I was like I have a personal relationship with God like I pray I read the bible but I do not like organized religion I hate going to church yeah, I I don't like going yeah. to church and people could be like well how can you not like going to church if you were a Christian I'm like because organized religion sucks it's all propaganda that 
has it's, it's nothing to do with Christianity anymore. It's nothing to do with God. Or yeah, and while we're putting it anymore. out there, megachurches should not be a thing. That's ridiculous. No. You don't need that money. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, just organized religion is... Ugh. People who try and twist the Bible to fit their own personal thing. I'm like, no, just actually... Just be a good person. Just be a good person. Damn. It's not hard, guys. When Elizabeth was 12, uh, he began sexually assaulting her. Mm. One would hope that Rosemary's reaction to all this would have been to protect her daughter. Right? Right? No. Mm. Let me guess. She is all on board with it. But no. She simply insisted that they wait until Elizabeth was of legal age, 15, to get married. But at 14, Elizabeth became pregnant with Marcus's baby, and they were soon wed, legally. Before Elizabeth reached the age of 26, she would have 10 more kids with him. Oh my god. 11 kids total before she was 26 years old. You might ask, why was this woman not protecting her children? Why were the siblings not sticking up for each other? It was 16 plus kids versus one, right? Well, here we have the cult aspect. Many assume that Rosemary, especially the original wife, since it began with her, um, but eventually it went to all the children, were extensively and extensively brainwashed and had just immense fear when it came to Marcus. Fair. Yeah, that could... I don't know if that's... But that sounds like that could be very valid. We'll get into a little bit of it. Um, It's said that Marcus's idea of leading and, quote, shepherding the family was to rule with a tough iron fist. He made his family refer to him as master and lord. He was brutal to the women and the children in his family, especially the women. He would beat them with electrical cords, baseball bats, and his fists. One son, uh, Serafino, said that he was beaten for 30 days straight because he stole a spoonful of peanut butter. I also, here's another note, a side note. I also read where this same son claimed that, quote, he looks really dangerous, but he's such a gentle guy. I can't believe he did it when asked about the murder claims from the beginning. So I'm just telling you both accounts of what he said. This could very well be where the brainwashing aspect kind of played in. Mm -hmm. One woman claimed that, one woman in the the family claimed that Marcus beat their one-month-old infant son until his legs bled because he wouldn't stop crying. Marcus believed the world was full of sin, so he isolated the family and forbade them to have contact with outsiders. They were all, quote, homeschooled. Once, when one of them tried to leave, Marcus stabbed her in the chest. He was also constantly moving the family around. So they once lived in a rusted out tugboat that had no electricity or running water and made them all stay below deck where they wouldn't be seen by anyone. Uh, When he had to go to the shore, he would make the women roll his raft like slaves to get anywhere. For almost 12 years, uh, they lived in an old army tent. They also lived on a school bus for a while, moving up and down the California coast, until finally purchasing an old office building in Fresno, where the events with the gunshots happened in the beginning. Daily life in the household followed almost all of the the cult cliche textbook things that you could think of. Every day, three times a day, he played preacher and subjected the family to hours-long Bible studies that were his own interpretations of the Bible, AKA the homeschooling that he did to all of his children. Uh, Weston believed that he was Jesus and that if anyone tried to separate the family, then quote, we would all go to heaven. It gets weirder. He also claimed that Jesus Christ was a vampire. 
Because both held what? the li- because both held the link to eternal life. In his own homemade Bible, he wrote, "Drinking blood was the key to immortality." I told you it got real weird with his interpretation. What the fuck? That doesn't that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So he's he's God. He's Jesus. Um. But also he's gonna drink blood because become a vampire because that's how you get immortality. The Bible told me so. I don't even know where to start. I just, I have so many, like... Marcus was also fascinated and felt kinship with David Koresh, the Waco cult leader himself, or Waco cult leader himself. During the siege of the compound in 1993, he was glued to the TV and told his family, quote, This man is just like me. He is making children for the Lord. That's what we should be doing, making children for the Lord. Uh, Also like David, Marcus despised law enforcement. He had a mandated suicide pact that, quote, If any government official ever tried to take the children away or split them up, the mothers were to kill their children and then themselves. He held monthly family meetings to discuss the details of this plan and enforce it. Brainwash it into them. Yeah. Marcus controlled every aspect of his family's life. The women and the girls had it the worst, though. So, trigger warning for all this stuff. They had to dress in long skirts and headscarves, walk behind him everywhere, remain completely silent in public. They were forbidden to talk with any men under punishment of being beaten. Their own brothers and cousins were kept separate from them. He was the only man allowed near them. Least they, quote, develop sexual feelings for other men because they were only his. He owned them, is what he told many of them. They were expected to do all of the labor, from taking care of the children, to cooking, cleaning, waiting on Marcus for every little thing, even washing him. He wasn't, he didn't even wash himself. And he had, like, really long, gross hair, and yeah. Once they were old enough to work for money, uh, they were expected to, and then all of the money went to Marcus, who didn't work. He solely relied on them for his income and welfare. The children often only had rice or food they found in the dumpsters to eat, while Marcus dined routinely on fast food. So much so that when he was arrested, he was nearly 300 pounds, but his children were starving. That was all horrendous, uh, but sorry to say, it's going to get a little bit worse right here. As soon as the girls in the family, basically his nieces and daughters, reached age eight, he began what he called loving. That's so gross. Yep. He would fondle them in their beds at night, then move to blatant, outright sexual assault. He claimed this was teaching them to be, quote, better women. He would then marry them in his own housemade ceremonies, where they would lay their hand upon his homemade fake Bible and recite vows, and then he'd give them, like, jewelry. And they were married, quote, unquote. Marcus went on to father seven more children by his nieces and daughters. In his beliefs, polygamy was mandatory and incest, quote, produces the seed of perfection of oneself. It's really gross. Two of Marcus's daughters slash nieces, there's really no way to tell anymore, insisted that the women in the house were happy. They claimed that whatever happened in the home was by agreement and talk. It was totally by choice. We had a democratic family. There was never any rape, nothing forcible. And while that may truly be what they think, that's where brainwashing. Yeah, they were definitely brainwashed. And not being allowed to talk to literally anyone else came into play. Uh, so I don't fault these women. I, I'm not going to name them because it's I can't fault them for thinking like that because they were brainwashed and they literally knew nothing else since yeah. they were born. Like they were raised in that situation and didn't yeah. know anything else outside of it. So I 
I, you can find their names if you're curious about it, but I, it's not necessary to name them. Uh, this lifestyle became very normal for the family. It was all they ever knew, kind of like I said. But for two of his nieces, Ruby and Safina, the two from the beginning who were yelling, uh, they wanted out. And Marcus, surprisingly, agreed eventually. But they could only leave if they left their two children, Jonathan and Aviv, behind. I don't know if I did that or if it was already like that. <laughs> Okay. She's so stressed, she just broke the stress ball. <laughs> it's alright. Um, so he would only let them leave if they left their two children. They were desperate, uh, and thinking that since they were boys, that they would be okay. So they agreed. As they adjusted to the normal outside world, though, they realized just how twisted what he did to them and what he was still doing to their family was, and they were like, no, this is not okay for any of our family members. We need to get, we need to save them. Mm-hmm. So that's when they gathered people and went back to the home to rescue their children, uh, who they were both seven years old, Jonathan and Aviv. So now we go back to what was found in the rundown office building uh, after Marcus walked out covered in blood. So after he surrendered to the arresting officers, uh, other officers on scene rushed inside. It was dark and silent. It was very spooky, they said. Against one wall were several antique coffins stacked up that he had purchased, and it kind of plays more into that vampire Thing. He claimed that those were, he bought those just because they were unique and to use them for wood and they were the children's beds. They were coffins. Oh my god. The officers entered a back room. Inside it was covered in blood and there was a pile of stacked up bodies. It was such a tangled mess of bodies it took many hours before police could even determine how many victims there were. It was several days before they were even identified. In total though, there were nine bodies. They were. Sabrina Wesson, who's 25, Elizabeth Wesson, who was 17, Ilabella Wesson, who was 8, Aviv Wesson, who was 7, Jonathan Wesson, who was 7, Ethan Wesson, who was 4, Sidonia Wesson, who was 2, Marshy Wesson, who was 2, and Jeeva Wesson, who was 1 years old. They had all been shot through the eye. Marcus Wesson was charged with nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of molestation and rape. I can't even talk right now. I'm so upset. <laughs> many of his family members came to testify, and shockingly, many were still loyal to him. His defense team claimed that he didn't kill anyone and that Sabrina, the 25-year-old, was the one who pulled the trigger, who murdered all of the children and then herself. The evidence was inconclusive as there was no prints on the gun. The gun, however, it did have her DNA on it, and the body was on top of the pile, and the murder weapon was under her body. So she was the last body on top, and the gun was placed under her. But it was impossible to say if she and the gun fell there after killing everyone and then herself, or if they and the gun were placed there. The gunshot wound in her head was also inconclusive. It was consistent with self-infliction wounds, but close range couldn't be ruled out either, but that he did it. Ruby and Sophina's testimony showed the degree at which he controlled the family and how he had implemented the murder-suicide brainwashing. It's pretty torn in the public's mind on whether Sabrina or Marcus was the one who actually pulled the trigger, uh, but most agree that he was the cause regardless, and it didn't really matter at that point if he was brainwashing them, if, they, if she was the one who did it. Yeah, either way, it's still his fault. He's yeah. Like, yeah. The jury also didn't actually care who pulled the trigger because Marcus Wesson was found guilty on all counts. And on June 25th, 2005, he was sentenced to 102 years for the rape um, charges 
and for the murder of the children and grandchildren, he received the death penalty. He was sent to San Quentin Prison, uh, which houses the nation's largest death row. In March 2019, the California governor, Gavin Newsom, signed a document that spared his life from the death penalty. Thankfully, though, he will never be eligible for parole. So he is just stuck in there. Elizabeth and the surviving children and victims are now grown. Um, they were all able to just see how brainwashed they were. Like they all had time to grow and reflect and they're like, yes, that was horrible. We were very brainwashed. Um, they've all tried to heal and move on with their lives as best as they could. In 2010, they spoke to reporters at ABC News as a way to kind of break their silence and tell their side of the story. And they no longer have any contact with Marcus, so they have given up on trying to defend him, which is good. Mm -hmm. And that's my case. God, that was awful. <laughs> I know. I I was really trying to like rush through it because it was it was a really bad case, but it, it was one I honestly don't know if I've heard much talk about. Yeah, once you started, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Um, and so I used Medium.com, All Things Interesting, and Murderpedia for all my sources. If you're interested, but I just thought it, I I I'm one of those people who cults definitely fascinate me but they also terrify me, mm -hmm. and they're horrible. And that one in particular with the fam Samuel stuff, it was just very icky. And it made me feel gross. Yeah. But it's over now. <laughs> Thank God. We're done. <laughs> yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> okay, so my case is the Sylvia Likens case. Um, so Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949, but she died on October 26, 1965, when she was 16 years old. She was the third of five children born to carnival workers, Lester Cecile Likens and his wife Elizabeth Betty Francis. She was born between two sets of fraternal twins, Daniel and Diana, who were two years older, and then Benny and Jenny, who were one year younger. When she was a teenager, Sylvia Likens earned money by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing chores, and often giving her mother part of her earnings. She has been described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl, and her friends called her Cookie, which is an adorable nickname. <laughs> yeah, that's very cute. I loved that, though, because my um, little cousins... They call my dad, whose name is Keith. They didn't know how to say Keith when they were younger, so they call him Uncle Cookie. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. Um, she loved the Beatles, and she was protective of her much more timid and insecure younger sister, Jenny. The two would often visit a local skating rink where Sylvia would help Jenny skate by holding her hand whilst Jenny skated on her unaffected foot she had one leg that was injured because she had polio when she was younger mm -hmm. and it just kind of never healed correctly. So Sylvia and Jenny Likens lived with their parents in Indianapolis but on July 3rd 1965 their mother um, Betty was arrested and jailed for shoplifting. Ooh. Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to live with Gertrude Banaszewski. I'm pretty sure it's Polish. I don't know. Okay. Banaszewski? Maybe. I... I I just remembered this case. Did you? Yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. This is a rough one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my trigger warnings. Uh, yeah. So, trigger warning for so child abuse, torture. Um, I'm gonna say sexual assault because they weren't actually sexually assaulting her, but they were assaulting her, but with a heavy focus on her genitalia. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I think that stands for so sexual assault. So, I'm gonna say sexual assault. 
God, yeah. I just remembered this case. Yeah, it's really rough. So, and it's, it's she's a 16-year-old girl, so child abuse and torture, so... So Gertrude was the mother of two girls that the sisters had recently got to know while at Arsenal Technical High School, Paula and Stephanie Banasuski. At the time, Gertrude assured Lester she would care for his daughters until his return as if they were her own children. The sisters moved in with the understanding that Gertrude would receive weekly boarding fees of $20 until um, Lester returned for Sylvia and Jenny in November. Although Lester had agreed to pay Gertrude, after approximately two weeks, the payment started coming late. Gertrude began taking it out on Sylvia and Jenny by spanking them with a paddle and saying things like, well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. Once they were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with the paddle after Paula had accused the sisters of eating too much food at church supper. By 1965, Gertrude focused her abuse on Sylvia. This initial abuse included subjecting her to beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled food out of the garbage. When Sylvia had mentioned a boy she had met in California, Stephanie and Gertrude began prodding her with questions about if she did anything, and she said that they hung out and laid under the covers together, so Gertrude told her she looked like she was going to have a baby, and Sylvia just laughed it off and said she probably needed to go on a diet. However, Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house that whenever they did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked like uh, kicked Sylvia in the genitals. Paula, who was three months pregnant and also jealous of Sylvia, also attacked her, knocking her off her chair onto the kitchen floor, saying, you ain't fit to sit in a chair. Once Gertrude, Paula, and a neighbor boy named Randy Gordon Lepper force-felled Sylvia and made her eat what she threw up. Uh, yeah, it's just, and it keeps getting worse yeah, the more. <laughs> In Sylvia's only act of retaliation, she spread a rumor at school that Stephanie and Paula were both prostitutes because she was upset with them for singling her out for similar accusations. Stephanie was approached by a boy joking about the rumor, um, kind of like being like, oh, like like kids. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, he hears she's a prostitute. So she, he kind of jokes and, like, offers, like, oh, well, if you are, like, do you want to do it with me? And um, when Stephanie confronted him about it, he told her that Sylvia started it. So Sylvia did later admit it at home that she was the one who started it, and Stephanie punched her. Sylvia cried and apologized, and Stephanie started crying, too. But when Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Randolph Hubbard, heard it, he brutally attacked Sylvia, slapping her, banging her head against the wall, and flipping her backward onto the floor. When Gertrude found out, she used the paddle on Sylvia again. A rumor. Yeah. And it's like, because Stephanie wasn't innocent in this stuff. She knew what was happening, but, like, she kind of did care about Sylvia. And, like, even though Sylvia had started the rumor about her, and even though she punched her... All she did was punch her, which, I mean, when you're... Yeah. If, it, if someone starts a rumor about you and, like, sometimes your reaction is, like, oh, I wish I could just, like, punch that person in the face. And then... But, like, when Sylvia started crying and, like, apologized, Stephanie was crying, too, and, like... Yeah. So... And, like, she started a rumor in retaliation to all this other shit yeah. that was, like, you can handle a rumor. Like... Yeah. Come on. Ugh. Yeah. It's just... It's just so... It's so bad. It's, yeah. Um, on another occasion, Paula beat Sylvia um, in the face with such force that she broke her own wrist. Mm -hmm. Then Paula used the cast on her wrist to further beat Sylvia. 
Gertrude also kept accusing Sylvia of being a prostitute, ranting to her about the filthiness of prostitution and of women in general. Okay. Yeah. Gertrude would also force Jenny to abuse her own sister and would beat Jenny if she didn't. Uh-huh. So Coy, Stephanie's boyfriend, and several of his classmates frequently visited the Banaszewski residence to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia. Gertrude encouraged them to beat Sylvia, and they sometimes used her as a practice dummy in violent judo sessions, lacerating her body, burning her skin with lit cigarettes over 100 times, and attacking her genitals. To entertain Gertrude, and like everyone else, um, Sylvia was forced to strip naked in the family living room and masturbate with a glass Pepsi Cola bottle in their presence. With Gertrude stating that this was so Sylvia could prove to Jenny what kind of girl you are. Fuck. Yeah. You're an adult woman. What? Yeah. Mm. All this started over 20 bucks. <laughs> I am. God, boggles the mind. Gertrude eventually kept Sylvia from attending school after she confessed to having stolen a gym suit from the school after Gertrude had refused to purchase the clothing for her. For this, Gertrude whipped her with a three-inch wide police belt... Gertrude then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex before repeatedly kicking her in the genitals as Stephanie rallied to Sylvia's defense, shouting she didn't do anything. Gertrude then burned her fingertips with matches and whipped her again, and then a few days later, Gertrude whipped Ginny with a police belt after she had reportedly stole a shoe from school. In July and August, both Lester and Elizabeth would occasionally return to visit their daughters whenever they could. The last time Lester and Elizabeth visited was in late August, and neither Sylvia nor Jenny showed any sign of distress, likely because they were in the presence of Gertrude and everyone else, so they couldn't show that they were distressed. Almost immediately after Lester and Elizabeth had left on their final visit, Gertrude told Sylvia, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone. Someone has issues. Lots of issues. Lots of issues all around. All the issues. Sylvia and Jenny had encountered Diana, their sister, um, that was two years older, mm-hmm. in the park while in the company of 11-year-old Marie Banaszewski, and Diana had given Sylvia a sandwich when Sylvia had told Diana she was hungry. Sylvia didn't tell anyone about it, but Marie told her family. In response, Gertrude accused Sylvia of engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked and bludgeoned her. They then made her take a scalding bath to cleanse her of sin. And Gertrude would grab Sylvia by the hair and bang her head against the bathtub to wake her out when she passed out. Shortly after, a father of a boy at their school saw Sylvia with open pores and, or open sores, and called the police. I was like, he can see that that clearly? (laughs) He can see her pores. No, open sores and he called the school. Right. He did not call the police, nor did he see her pores. I don't know why I was stuck on the letter P. It's fine. It's stressful. It happens. A school nurse then came out to visit, but Gertrude claimed that Sylvia had run away and wasn't sure where she was. And she had also said that if he had seen sores, it was because Sylvia had bad personal hygiene and then told the school nurse that Sylvia was a bad influence on the girls in the house. The immediate neighbors of the Banaszewski family were a middle-aged couple named Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion. They had visited the house twice and once saw Paula beating Sylvia and bragging about it. And they had even seen her in worse condition, but did not ever report it. 
Why? I, I don't know. Oh, say, see something, say something. I like. To, I don't want to keep going, but I, I need know. to get to the end. <laughs> like I'm so. I hate this case. I know. On or around October first, Diana Shoemaker, the sister, um, discovered where Sylvia and Jenny were staying. She visited in an attempt to keep contact with the two sisters. Gertrude, however, refused Diana, stating that she had permission from their parents to, not to allow either girl to see her. So Gertrude was just like, oh, well, your parents said that you can't see her. Why, why would that even be a thing? Yeah, it, it wasn't. She just I lied. know. Why, why would she be like, oh, that makes sense? She then ordered Diana off her property. Approximately two weeks later, Diana saw Jenny by chance. Um, I think they were at the park. And she had happened to see Jenny and asked about Sylvia. Jenny told her, I can't tell you or I'll get into trouble. Poor Jenny. I know. On October 6th, Gertrude threw Sylvia into the basement and tied her up. This is where it gets really bad. Yeah. It's already been really bad, but this yeah. is where it gets really, really bad. Yeah. Basements are never a good scene for this, so. Never. Just... Here she was often kept naked, rarely fed, and often deprived of water. <laughs> Occasionally, she would be tied to the railing of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. After locking her in the basement, Gertrude's abuse got worse. She would even tell the other children that Sylvia was insulting them, hoping that it would encourage them to retaliate. One time, Gertrude held a knife out to Sylvia and told her to fight me back. Sylvia told her she didn't know how, and then Gertrude injured her leg. And it said it gave her some kind of wound, but when I kept looking up, the kind of wound is like a scour wound. When I kept looking it up, I couldn't get a definition on what a scour wound was. Maybe it's like a like a flesh wound? Is that what it means? I don't know, because when I looked up scour wound, it just kept giving me the definition of scour. Oh, uh, like, yeah. And apparently that means, like, to wash something by scrubbing it. So I don't know if maybe, like, she just scrubbed Sylvia's leg to where it, like, created a rash or, like, a burn or something. I don't know. I Maybe. You know how, you, like, if you, like, rub something, like, with brittle or something rough, it gets, like, the drag marks? Yeah, Would maybe. that maybe be like that? I don't know, because when I... Or like, when you, like, slide on your knees and you... You get, like, carpet burn or something or, like... Something, something similar like that? Yeah, that was my thought, but I wasn't sure because when I... I typed in scour wound and it was just, like... This is the definition of scour. This is the definition of scour. And I'm like, well, but what does it mean when it's talking about a wound? Yeah. Is it like the same thing? So I wasn't sure. I was like, mm -hmm. I'm just assuming that that's what it meant. So I just kind of left it out because I didn't want to be like, this is what it is when I don't actually know. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you tried. I, I did try to look it up. <laughs> um, neighborhood children were also charged five cents a piece to see the display of Sylvia's body to humiliate and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and mutilate her. Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and neighborhood children, restrained and gagged Sylvia and put her in a bathtub filled with scalding water again before rubbing salt into her wounds. God, Diana. Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., rubbed urine and feces from Gertrude's 1-year-old son's diaper into Sylvia's mouth before giving her a cup half-filled with water and stating it was all she would receive for the remainder of the day. <sighs> yeah. I hate it. On October 22nd, John Jr. tormented Sylvia by offering her a bowl of soup that she had to eat with her fingers, and then he would quickly take the bowl away from Sylvia 
whenever she tried to eat out of it. And at this point, like, she was suffering from extreme malnourishment, like, really badly. So, of course, she was going to reach for the food because she just wanted something. And then he would just take it quickly away from her. Gertrude eventually allowed Sylvia to sleep upstairs again on the condition that she learned not to wet herself because after months of the abuse, like... Maybe stop beating up her genitals. Yeah. Um, she's not going to be able to control that, so... But she let her upstairs, but she wasn't allowed to wet herself, even though she couldn't control it because Gertrude was literally abusing her. But, you know, whatever. That night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny to secretly give her a glass of water because she was also dehydrated. And the following morning, Gertrude discovered that Sylvia did indeed wet herself because she has no control over it. And so as punishment, Gertrude um, forced Sylvia to insert an empty glass Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina in front of everyone before Gertrude forced her back into the basement. What purpose does that serve at all? Literally none. She's just, Gertrude is just a psycho. Psycho. Yes. (sighs) Once Gertrude shouted for Sylvia to come to the kitchen, then ordered her to strip naked before telling her, You have branded my daughters, now I am going to brand you. She began carving the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, onto Sylvia's abdomen with a heated needle. (sighs) Gertrude was unable to finish, so she instructed one of the neighborhood children present, 14-year-old Richard Dean Hobbs, to finish. In what he insisted were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text onto Sylvia's abdomen, and both Richard and 10-year-old Shirley Benazuski took Sylvia back into the basement, where each proceeded to use an anchor belt in an attempt to burn the letter S beneath Sylvia's left breast, although they applied one section of the loop backward, and this deep burn scar would resemble the numeral three. So there were not short, light etchings as Richard Hobbs wanted to testify. Why do children keep hanging out at this fucking lady's house? I don't know. You would think, like, that would not be the place you want to go once you realize what's going on there. God, because they probably liked it. it just... Like, I can, I can understand if your mother is a psycho, and this is similar to my case, what you grew up like brainwash style to abuse this poor child but the neighborhood kids have a choice yeah it's like because the ones who are in the house like Ginny doesn't have a choice like if she doesn't participate she's gonna get she's gonna get it turned on her and then the other daughters who are young that's their mother that's their mom so of course they're going to listen to her especially if but these fucking boy neighborhood kids what the fuck they just showed up and they're like "Hmm, let's abuse a girl Ugh, Richard. Ugh, Richard. <laughs> yeah. We probably shouldn't do that. Your boyfriend's actually a really nice guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he would never do that. God. You have to get me to hit me when I want it. <laughs> <laughs> so do you mind? <laughs> Kinky. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I just needed to lighten the mood. <laughs> that did. That really worked. <laughs> Well-timed, topical, <laughs> 10 out of 10. Thanks for trying. <laughs> I'll be here forever. Sadly. Just need a little emoji for a little bit. 
Because it just keeps getting worse. I know. For no fucking reason. Yeah. Literally no reason. All of this is nonsensical. Like, it's just, there was no reason for any of this to happen. It was all over, it all started over 20 fucking dollars. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. Gertrude later taunted Sylvia by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved on her stomach, stating, Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? Sylvia cried and said, I guess guess there's nothing I can do. Later that day, Sylvia was forced to show the carving to the neighborhood children, with Gertrude claiming that she had received it at a sex party. That night, Sylvia told her sister, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell. So Gertrude then had Sylvia write a letter and she had finished writing the letter and um, it was Gertrude forcing her to say that she had run away because of the neighborhood boys abusing and mutilating her. She was then again tied to the stair railing and offered crackers to eat, but she refused them saying, give it to the dog. I don't want it. Gertrude forced the crackers into Sylvia's mouth before she and John the husband. So John Jr. was there earlier, but this time it's John the husband. Okay. Um, so yeah, they forced it into Sylvia's mouth. I was and going then, to ask if Gertrude was married. Yeah, I think yeah, because there's John Benazuski cool and John Jr. But that's yeah, I don't. Okay. On October twenty fifth, Sylvia attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing a conversation between Gertrude and John Jr. Keep in mind who's twelve. Okay. Pertaining to the family's plan to abandon her to die. Casual conversation with your 12-year-old. Yeah. Um, however, due to her injuries and unwellness, Gertrude caught her before she could escape. Sylvia was then given toast to eat, but she couldn't because she was severely dehydrated. Gertrude forced the toast into her mouth before repeatedly striking her face with a curtain rod until it was bent into right angles. God. Okay. Yeah. And curtains are thick. Yeah, I'm like, I can't tell you how many, like, curtain rods we've gotten at work that I'm like, this is surprisingly heavy for this thin, this, but it is. Hit in the face. Curtain rods are made out of, like, metal. They are, it's tough to bend them, but she, yeah, I just, uh, so Koi then took the curtain rod from, who is Stephanie's boyfriend, he then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and hit Sylvia once more, knocking her unconscious, and Gertrude dragged Sylvia back into the basement. Okay. On the morning of October 26th, Sylvia was unable to speak or move correctly. Gertrude attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk, but she threw Sylvia to the floor when she was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips, because with all of the malnourishment and the abuse, she you know. wasn't... She could barely move or speak anymore. Naturally. And, of course, Gertrude thinks it's Sylvia's fault, and because she couldn't move the glass. She's an actual psycho. Yeah. That afternoon, several of Sylvia's other abusers gathered in the basement. Sylvia jerkingly moved her arms in an, uh, in an attempt to point at the faces of the ones she could recognize, making statements such as, You're Ricky and you're Gertie, before Gertrude tersely shout- shouted, Shut up, you know who I am. So she was trying to point them out, but she could barely, like, think. Yeah. Can't even fathom that. Trying to clean Sylvia, John Jr., who was laughing while he was doing this, sprayed her with a garden hose brought to the house that afternoon by Randy Lepper at Gertrude's request. 
Sylvia again desperately attempted to exit the basement, but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this effort, Gertrude stomped on Sylvia's head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after 5.30 in the evening, Richard Hobbs returned to the house um, and immediately went to the basement. He slipped on the wet basement stairs and fell to the floor of the basement, only to see Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's lacerated body after she had been ordered by her mother to clean her. Stephanie and Richard gave her a warm bath and dressed her in new clothes. They laid her on a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered that she wished her daddy was here and and that she wanted Stephanie to take her home. Stephanie then turned to her younger sister, Shirley, exclaiming that, you know, Sylvia would be all right. Sylvia was not going to be all right. No. When Stephanie realized that Sylvia was not breathing, she attempted to give her mouth to mouth as Gertrude shouted that she was faking her death. She was 16 years old when she died due to the abuse. Yeah, like, shouldn't have even happened, but I'm glad she doesn't have to get tortured anymore at the same time. Well, yeah, I (laughs) know. Although Gertrude initially beat Sylvia's corpse. I know. uh, It was coming, I'm just saying. (laughs) Like, at least mentally mentally she wasn't there for that. But yeah, Gertrude continued to beat her corpse. Because. Actually, I'm saying. And um, with a book while shouting faker. She soon panicked and instructed Richard Hobbs to call the police from a nearby payphone. When the police arrived, Gertrude led the officers to Sylvia's emaciated, extensively bludgeoned, and mutilated body lying upon a soiled mattress in the bedroom before handing them the letter that she had forced her to write, also claiming that Gertrude had been doctoring her, saying all she had done was apply rubbing alcohol to Sylvia's wounds in an attempt at first aid before she had died. No. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. (laughs) You were beating her with a book. As previously instructed by Gertrude, Jenny Likens recited the rehearsed version of events leading to Sylvia's death to the police. But after she had whispered to one of the officers, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. The formal statement provided by Jenny prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Jr. on suspicion of Sylvia's murder within the hours of discovering her body. That same day, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were also arrested and charged with the same offenses. Good. The three eldest Banaszewski children plus Coy Hubbard were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center and the younger Banaszewski children and Richard Hobbs were detained at the Indianapolis Children's Guardian's home. All were held without bail pending trial. Gertrude denied involvement, but later said she knew Paula and Coy had been beating her, and then later said she had only made her sleep in the basement three times because Sylvia was wetting the bed. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting to beating Sylvia with her mother's police belt, breaking her wrist on Sylvia's jaw, and inflicting other acts of brutality, including pushing her down the stairs into the basement two or three times. And she also admitted to inflicting a black eye. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion, adding that most of the time I use my fists to abuse her. He admitted to having burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions, adding that his mother had repeatedly burned her with cigarettes. Richard Hobbs and Gertrude Banaszewski, before Marion County Judge Harry Zacklin on November 1st, 1965, were both charged with murder. Five other children who had participated in Sylvia's abuse, um, Michael Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, had also been arrested by October 29th. All were charged with causing injury to person and each was subsequently released into the custody of their parents 
under subpoena to appear as witnesses at the upcoming trial. The autopsy of Sylvia's body revealed she had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The injuries themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and stage of healing. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut, although an examination determined that her hymen was indeed still intact, discrediting Gertrude's claims that Sylvia had been three months pregnant, a prostitute, and promiscuous. Right. Not that she should have to prove that, but it just goes to show how literally insane that Gertrude shit, was. Crazy. All of her fingernails were broken backward, and most of the external layers of skin upon her face, breast, neck, and right knee had been peeled or receded. The official cause of Sylvia's death was listed by coroner Dr. Arthur Kebble as a subdural hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple. Shock, malnutrition, and prolonged injuries were listed as contributory factors to her death. Right. The trial of the five defendants lasted 17 days. On May 19, 1966, after deliberating for eight hours, the jury found Gertrude Banaszewski guilty of first-degree murder, recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula Banaszewski was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Richard Coy and John Jr. were found guilty of manslaughter. Gertrude and Paula were sentenced to life in prison, and then the others were sentenced to 2 to 21 years. Gertrude and Paula attempted to get a retrial. Um, Paula, instead of facing a retrial, pled guilty to volunteer manslaughter and was sentenced to 2 to 20 years. And despite having tried to escape prison twice, was released in December of 1972. Jesus Christ. She became a school teacher after Great. changing her name and hiding her criminal history, but after the school board found out, she was immediately fired. Good. Jesus Christ. Gertrude was sentenced to life in prison after her retrial, but she became a model prisoner doing jobs like sewing and becoming a den mother to the other inmates, and she had found Jesus. Of course. She was then paroled, on December 4th, 1985, but she died in 1990 at 61 due to lung cancer. I hope it was horrible. And that's my case. Yeah, that's... It was horrible. Completely pointless. I just, I literally... Was she ever diagnosed with anything mentally, Gertrude? She was pronounced sane to the court, so... So it was just for fun. Yeah. At least if I remember correctly, because I'm pretty sure something I, wrong. I read like, that damn. she had tried to get like an insanity thing, but the, they were like, "No, you are. You knew what you were doing." She if she was like stuff with all the genitals and the prostitution, like yeah. there was something there. Pretty horrible, mochi. I don't know why I keep picking cases like this. Because <laughs> I did like the Gabriel Fernandez case, and then I did this, and I'm like, I, "Why do I keep doing this?" There does seem to be a theme. <laughs> Puppy. There's like a black lab out there. <laughs> we are all creeping on my neighbors across the street. <laughs> Mochi started it. Yeah, Mochi is starving, so I guess we need to wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, 
both of our cases were horrible. We're sorry. Yeah, really sorry about that. This is going to be a rough week, but... <sighs> over with now. Yeah, and we're going to get a bonus episode, so if you want to hear me simp over another anime, check out our next episode. That'll come out the following week when this one comes out. Yeah, Skylar's going to tell us all facts again. I actually did proper research this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just going to be a mess like the last one was. All right, so the drink wheel is ready. Do you want to spin the topic wheel? Sure. It's nice. Fingers crossed. Oh, that's a new one. We've got culture, travel, language. All right. And our drink is red wine. Oh, so we mean classy and classy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, do we want to do what we had talked about, or do you just kind of want to wing it and see I how it I need a refresher on what we talked about. Well, since I said, like, I would really want to do the languages, um, you were like, oh, well, if you tell me, like, what language you're going to do, I could do either the culture or, like, some travel things about that place. Yeah, um, I think that sounds fun. Um, especially now that people are getting vaccinated yeah. and traveling might open back up. Let's take a trip, guys. Let's do it, and I'll teach you some language. Yeah, I think that'll be fun. And drink red wine. So classy. Yeah. So bougie. We may have to break out some stemmed wine glasses. Oh, well, sorry, you're crazy. <laughs> You'll break them. <laughs> we gotta keep it a little trashy with our stemless wine glasses. Yeah. But we do have these fancy ice cubes that are just frozen blocks. Well, so that with, way. Not with red wine, dear. No ice cubes. I like cold wine in general. White red, wine. Red or white. I will drink it cold. Oh, <laughs> but I will also drink at room temperature. Goodness. So as long as it's wine. It will be wine. And it will be fine. Did you hate that? I did. Very much. <laughs> very, very much. Well, while you seethe over there and your hatred for me, where can they find us? So you can find us at Sip and Spin Pod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at Sip and Spin Pod at gmail.com. You can find Brittany at Whimsy Dream or Whimsy Dreams, and Skylar at Gleam YKS on everything. And all of our link trees will be down below. Yes, and you can find Mochi probably next week uh, in the background where she stays. Make a noise. Uh, but we thank you so much for listening. We're yes, thank you. Sorry this episode was kind of rough. Yeah. Uh, so grab grab a stress ball or a stuffed animal or your animal or, or just... Yeah, grab your nearest cat, stress ball, pillow, alcohol, whatever you need. And then next couple episodes should be some fun, light ones. So we hope you keep coming back. Yeah. And we'll sip with you next time. <laughs> I rolled my eyes. You can't see it, but I did. Bye! Bye.